And so we're going to read from Romans chapter 14. The subchapter title is, Do not cause another to stumble. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for an, every, anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whatever has doubts, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Moving into chapter 15. We are, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Amen. Well, good morning. And uh, let me uh, add my welcome to Ashes and to thank Ash for leading the service. Uh, thank our musicians uh, too. My name's Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And it is great to have you with us this morning. Um, as Ash has mentioned, we're continuing through our studies in uh, the book of Romans this morning. But before we do that, there are just a couple of things um, I was keen to mention. Uh, firstly, with communion now being part of our morning services every other Sunday, morning services do last a little bit longer than perhaps they used to. Um, we're working on on the basis of them lasting about an hour and a quarter overall, and I just mentioned that so you're aware uh, going forwards. Um, and secondly, some church family news. Uh, this week marked the 50th wedding anniversary of Brian and Rhoda. Um, they didn't, didn't know I was going to mention this, and um, I'm very sorry for the embarrassment, um, but God has used their marriage to bless lots of people in this church family um, over many, many years. Many of us can testify to that ourselves, uh, and we are thankful to them. And thankful for them. And so as we come to study the Bible together this morning, I'm just going to briefly pray for both them and for our time together this morning in Romans chapter 14. So let me lead us in prayer. 
Our God and Father, we do thank you for our brother and sister, Brian and Rhoda, for their love for you and for their love for one another. We thank you, Lord, for guiding and guarding them through 50 years of marriage. And we do pray, Lord, that as they think back over those years together, this week in particular, you would enable them to enjoy your goodness to them over all of that time. And Lord, we ask that you continue to use them for your purposes here in Hebron in many years to come. And we pray too for this morning, Lord, and ask that as we come to study the Bible together, your eternal word, you would please give each one of us ears to hear it and hearts to respond. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, moving from the sublime to the somewhat ridiculous, let me ask you a question. How much would you be willing to pay for a sausage roll? How much would you be willing to pay for a sausage roll? Might be a bit of an unfair question to ask before giving you some more details. First, you might want to know what kind of sausage roll we're talking about before you give me an answer. So if the sausage has been scrimped on and the pastry's a bit stale and shock horror, there's no sauce then possibly not all that much. But um, in Edinburgh, uh, where we've been living until recently, I once saw a cafe serving a sausage roll with smashed avocado, whatever that is, uh, and organic ketchup. And uh, most people, I think, would have found themselves needing to take out a small mortgage to get their hands on one of those. How much would you be willing to pay for a sausage roll? Well, the answer probably depends, doesn't it? So let me put a bit more of a concrete question to you, a concrete proposal this morning to consider. Would you be willing to exchange someone's eternal salvation for a sausage roll? Would you be willing to exchange someone's eternity for a sausage roll? And the answer comes back, of course not. No matter how free-range the sausage is, no matter how well smashed the avocado, however it is you're meant to smash an avocado, that's a bad deal. And it's a bit ridiculous to put those two things together, isn't it? They're a completely different order of value from one another. But before you begin to think, I've completely lost the plot, if you haven't already, and someone gently escorts me from the platform, there is a reason for me making that kind of proposal to you this morning. And the reason is that that is exactly the kind of value comparison that the Apostle Paul makes in chapter 14 of the book of Romans. The comparison between the value of a sausage roll and that of someone's eternity. Just notice that with me. Next slide, please. Thank you. Romans 14, verse 15. By what you eat, says Paul, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Or verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. We are continuing in these studies in Romans this morning, and the issue we've seen Paul addressing so far in Romans 14, we saw last week, is that some of the members of the church in Rome, to whom Paul was writing, used to be Jewish. And despite having become Christians, they still had real conscience issues about letting their Jewish behaviours go, including behaviours like not eating pork. But alongside those Jewish believers, there were Christians in the church in Rome who were not from a Jewish background and who had no such scruples. 
They felt they had freedom as Christians to eat anything they wanted. And we saw last Sunday that that difference of view was causing a bit of a problem in the church in Rome. Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians were judging each other and despising each other, each thinking that the other wasn't taking spiritual matters seriously enough. And this week, we don't move on from that same issue we thought about last week. We're still thinking about a disagreement over how Christians should and shouldn't behave. Only this week, Paul ramps the stakes up much, much higher. To those Christians who felt free to eat what they liked, Paul says that by how they were exercising that freedom, well, they were threatening the eternal salvation of their brothers and sisters. Or in other words, the real cost of them eating a pork sausage roll was someone's eternity. And that's a high price to pay. Now that's what was going on then. And it might sound like it's a million miles away from 21st century Scotland. It might even sound a bit funny to us as I lay that value comparison out a few moments ago. But as we're going to see together this morning, the broader principle at work of how it is that Christians use their freedoms is still live and kicking. And can I just say that it has every bit the same potential to be as deadly in a church family like ours here at Hebron as it did in Rome. So we're going to think about that under our first heading this morning in a bit more detail. Next slide, please. Um, To the free Christian, limit your liberty in order not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, it isn't always the case, is it, that just because you're free to do something, that it's wise or safe to exercise that freedom. Think, for example, of a story that made the press earlier this year of the Czech millionaire who in April took his supercar for a drive to Germany. Why Germany? Well, because of the Autobahn, which is, if you don't know, a motorway which legally in, in little sections has no speed limit. And uh, that meant that our Czech friend was well within the bounds of the law when his car reached a speed, wait for it, of 257 miles an hour, as it did. But, as the German Transport Ministry subsequently pointed out, just because it's legal to do something, that doesn't make it safe. And that's something like the principle that Paul applies in Romans 14. Just because as a Christian you're free to behave in a particular way, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe to do so. And both parts of that idea are important, I think. What Paul is talking about in Romans 14 is Christian freedom, about the fact that Christians are free to behave in particular ways. And it might be possible to hear a phrase like Christian freedom and think it sounds as though Christians are free to do whatever they want. So, for example, when Paul says in verse 14, nothing is unclean in itself, what he really means to say is the Christian life is a bit of a free-for-all. I once heard a Christian minister citing this verse and and using it to, to, to defend basically that principle when it comes to sexual ethics. They were saying it, I should say, to a room full of other Christian ministers. They cited this verse and said that God had now declared that all behaviors were clean in their eyes and so there were no rights and no wrongs. But you see, that's to completely misunderstand what Paul's saying and what the rest of the Bible teaches. 
following Jesus, knowing Jesus is wonderful and it is freeing, but it is also costly. Jesus says it involves denying ourselves, taking up a cross in order to follow him. And so when we come to living as Christians, we submit ourselves to Jesus, to what he tells us. Christian freedom, in other words, does not equal Christian free-for-all. But at the same time, there are areas of genuine Christian freedom. Behaviors and practices that as Christians we can view as essentially being morally neutral. And that's the kind of freedom Paul's talking about in verse 14 of chapter 14. So for example, Paul grew up as a committed Jew. And that meant that according to his conscience from where he'd grown up, well he couldn't eat pork. He wasn't prohibited, he was prohibited from eating pork. But as a Christian, his freedom as a Christian meant that he was now free to eat a bacon roll if he wanted. And bacon rolls weren't the only liberty he might enjoy. Verse 5 of chapter 14, Paul says, One person esteems one, person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. It seems that Christian freedom extended to how people thought of, of particular holy days. Perhaps even to how people treated a day like the Sabbath. All of which is to say that there are a number of areas in which Christians might enjoy genuine freedoms. Those are just two examples among quite a number. And yet, as our Czech millionaire friend and his rapid supercar helps to illustrate, it's possible to have the right knowledge to fully and rightly appreciate all of the wonderful freedoms we have, but to use those freedoms in a way that's dangerous, destructive, deadly even. And that's Paul's big point in Romans 14. How is it that any of that actually works, though? How might my exercise of, of, of my freedom as a Christian, how might that hurt or destroy a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus? Well, I think Paul probably has a couple of different situations in mind. And to help explain what those might look like, let me introduce you to um, an invented character called Tom. Uh, Tom grew up in a Christian home. Uh, Forgive me, Tom grew up in a Jewish home. He was committed to the Jewish faith, but recently became a Christian. And um, he joined a church. Uh, Only when he arrived on the first Sunday morning service... The pre-service snack was bacon rolls. I bet you're wishing you went to that church, don't you? Bacon rolls before the service. And whilst all of the other Christians who were there were tucking into those butties and were laughing and joking about how great it was, they were all free to eat what they liked, well, Tom was deeply shaken. See, it went against everything he'd ever known. And he wondered whether the Christian faith Well, whether it really was all it was cut out to be, whether it was worth persevering with, or whether she'd just head back to the synagogue where things felt more simple. And that seems to be the idea in verses 13 to 19. Just read with me again, verse 15 of Romans 14. Paul says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul's concern seems to be that by grieving his Jewish brother, 
by upsetting him in how you exercise your freedom, now that that Jewish brother has become a Christian, well, that brother might be so grieved that he walks away from the Christian faith altogether. That's one way in which this might cash out. There's another way in which this kind of freedom flexing might cause a brother or sister to stumble. We see it in verses 20 to 23. And this time to illustrate the issue, let me introduce you to another character called Debbie. Like Tom, Debbie grew up in a Jewish home. And for her, the Sabbath was a really important day. It was a day in the week that was set aside to go to synagogue. And then she would spend the rest of the day resting. Debbie became a Christian, and though she was a bit nervous about going to church rather than to synagogue on a Sabbath day, she found the whole thing pretty positive after all, so much so that after the service, someone asked her back to their house for lunch, and she was delighted to say yes. Only, on their way home, her new friend said they needed to nip into a shop to pick something up for lunch. Debbie said in, in, in reply that, That doesn't seem quite right to her to go into a shop on the day of rest. It kind of grates against her conscience. And in response, her new friend says, "Ah, Don't worry about that. You're a Christian now. You're free. Come on in with me. Debbie is unpersuaded, but listens to her Christian friend. And acting against her own conscience, she goes into the shop too. Now, objectively, there might not be anything wrong with what she has done in one sense. She was free as a Christian to go into that shop. But at the insistence of her Christian friend, she has violated her own conscience. And Paul would say to the Christian friend, you destroyed your sister. See how that works. Read again verse 22 of chapter 14. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Or in other words, blessed is the one who counts himself free. But, verse 23, whoever has doubts, like Debbie, over what's okay and what isn't, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Can you see how that works in both of those instances, in both Tom's situation and Debbie's situation? This isn't a call on folks who feel themselves free as Christians not to exercise their freedoms at all, necessarily. No, what Paul's saying to the strong Christian, one who knows they're free, is don't use that freedom in a way that's going to make Tom and Debbie stumble and perhaps fall away altogether. Now, I think that was the kind of thing going on in the church in Rome. But again, it is worth pausing and acknowledging that might well feel roughly a squillion miles away from where we are sitting here this morning. There aren't many of us, I guess, who are Jewish Christians here who are part of the church family at Hebron. So this might feel like a bit of a history lesson to some of us. But I don't think it is. Because even if the specifics are often different... That undergirding principle, well, it is definitely alive and well today. And to show you that, I'm going to give you two examples. Both are imperfect parallels to the situation in Rome, but go some way towards showing how it actually cashes out in real life. One is an instance where I'm ashamed to say I got this wrong. And another is an instance where a friend of mine got it right. 
Uh, firstly, my example of getting this wrong. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to go and speak at a church on a Sunday morning. Uh, and the practice in that church family was that Sundays were very formal affairs. Uh, everyone wore suits and ties to go to the Sunday meeting. Everyone without exception. And that wasn't just a personal preference thing. Uh, it wasn't just a fashion decision. Uh, nor did they, and it's important to say this, nor did they think that unless you wore a tie to church, you weren't a genuine Christian. That wasn't the sense there. That would be adding to the message of Jesus. And that isn't the thing Paul's talking about here. No, this was a genuinely held conviction that dressing smartly was part of honouring God when coming together on a Sunday. And in contrast with that conviction, I felt free. Free to wear whatever I wanted to church. The Bible didn't require me necessarily to wear a suit, so I didn't feel obliged at all. And to be honest, when I was invited to speak at this church, well, I saw it as a bit of an opportunity. I was a young man who who wanted to show some other folks who were really just being a bit uptight about things that they really had freedom as Christians. That's how I saw it. They could loosen up. And uh, so I decided to just wear what I would usually have worn to church, to flex my freedom and wear what I wanted. Thankfully... I happened to be speaking to a much older and wiser Christian the night before I was due to go. And I just mentioned in the passing what I was planning on doing. And he told me that I was being a bit of a hothead. He used slightly less polite words than that. But you get the gist. He said I should just suck it up and wear a shirt and tie. Thankfully, that's what I ended up doing. But I think it does go towards illustrating the kind of heart that Paul is keen to address. It's a heart that says... I'm free on this issue. And those folk over there, they just haven't fully grasped the freedom they have as Christians. What they really need, well, what they need is to ignore how they feel. Push through the pain barrier of their conscience. And to be honest, what they really need is to be more like me. That was the undergirding principle that I was adopting back in that situation. There's one example. Don't do what I do. In that one. Let me give another one just in case it's helpful. A few years ago, a friend of a friend of mine became a Christian, which was wonderful. And it was a bit of a surprise at the time because the friend of my friend had previously lived quite a wild lifestyle. And his coming to faith brought about quite a radical shift in the kind of life choices he was going to make. But because he'd struggled a bit with it before he became a Christian, After he became a Christian, he found that alcohol was a particular problem for him. Not just drinking it, but he felt that he couldn't be faithful as a Christian by being around it at all. And my friend was arranging to meet up with him. And my friend suggested that they meet somewhere that was a kind of cafe bar. It was licensed to sell alcohol after a certain time of day. Otherwise, it was really a cafe. But they knew that at the time they'd be going in there, quite a number of other folks around the room would be drinking alcohol. My friend didn't really think all that much about suggesting that kind of venue. As a Christian, he felt that he was free to go into a bar. Didn't cross his mind that it would even be an issue. But his friend mentioned he'd rather meet somewhere else. And he explained why. And so my friend was left with a decision on whether to encourage his friend to ignore his conscience, to embrace his freedom as a Christian, And to meet in this cafe bar or not. And to his credit, the way my friend reasoned through his dilemma was Romans 14. Is my freedom to go into this bar worth the cost 
of my friend potentially being destroyed as a Christian. And of course, when he put it in those kinds of terms, the calculation did itself, didn't it? Of course that's not worth it. Now those are just a couple of examples. But if this still does seem quite niche, seems a bit remote from your experience, well can I just say that I think in a church family like Hebron, it really is relevant. And the reason I say that is that lots of us come from completely different faith backgrounds, and none. And the conscience issues ingrained in each one of us might well be pretty varied. And I know that, for example, there are a number of folks in this church family right now who are trying to discern what is and what isn't a legitimate Christian freedom. What should my conscience be bothered by as it is at the moment? And what am I free to do? And that means that having our antenna up for one another, listening carefully to one another and to what kinds of issues are Romans 14's issues for each of us, Well, that is one way we show love for one another as a church family. So let me return to the question we opened with. Only let me modify it a bit from, would you exchange a sausage roll for someone's eternity, which might have sounded a bit flippant, but wasn't intended to be. Let me turn the screw a little bit. Would you exchange your freedom as a Christian to meet someone in a bar for the sake of their eternity? Would you exchange your freedom as a Christian to go into a shop with them on a Sunday for the sake of someone's eternity? Is the exercise of your freedoms as a Christian, whatever that particular freedom looks like, is it worth the destruction of your brother and sister in the Lord? See, when you're asked to make that kind of value comparison as Paul forces us to make, there just isn't a comparison, is there? That's our first point this morning, to the free Christian. Limit your liberty in order not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's the end of chapter 14. But I wonder if you notice that Paul doesn't just present things in the negative. That has been quite negative so far, hasn't it? He isn't just concerned, though, about whether or not we destroy one another. The beginning of chapter 15, well, he looks at the other side of the coin. He thinks about building each other up. And we're going to think about that much more briefly under our second heading this morning. Next slide, please. Um, To the free Christian, build up your brothers and sisters because Christ has served you. Now, I am aware that some of us might well be thinking at this point that what I've been describing so far sounds like hard work. You might not really have given much thought before as to how your behavior as a Christian, your use of, of freedoms as a Christian might actually harm other people. And not only that, it all might sound a bit niche. Maybe because the examples in Romans 14 might sound a bit remote from our experiences as Christians today. But whilst you might be struggling to think on the specifics of how this issue applies to your own life, well, can I just say that the overall heart set, the overall attitude that Paul is calling for, well, it definitely does apply to each and every one of us. And in fact, Paul is much stronger than just calling us to live in a particular way. One of you noticed that. He says in chapter 15 that this heart set, the attitude that puts other interests ahead of our own, well, for the Christian, it's an obligation. You see that? Chapter 15, verse 1. Just look at that again with me. We who are strong have an obligation 
to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Isn't that strong language? We are obligated, we're indebted to love one another in a Romans 14 kind of way. Why is he so strong? Chapter 15, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. See, Jesus didn't please himself, but bore reproach, that is, is insults or animosity, bore all that each one of us have heaped on God in our rebellion against him. And he did that for our good, to rescue each one of us. And I wonder if you can see the way that adds yet another log to the fire of why it is that we're to serve our brothers and sisters as Christians. Put negatively chapter 14, we serve each other so our brothers and sisters aren't destroyed. And put positively chapter 15, we serve each other because we have been served infinitely more by Jesus. So listen, if you find it hard to serve a brother or sister putting their interests ahead of your own will know that Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done first and know that he isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us now if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian this morning you might well be wondering whether all of this is really worth it it all sounds very complicated And it all sounds like a lot of hard work, inconveniencing yourself for the sake of someone who, to be honest, hasn't really done anything to deserve it. And if that is what you're thinking, if you can see the unreasonableness of this kind of sacrifice, well, you, you might be getting some way towards understanding what the Christian faith is all about. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is the news of a king, of the king of the universe, who despite having done nothing wrong, died a criminal's death on a cross. And he did so in order to, verse 7, welcome you. Welcome those of us who have done wrongs in our life, which is all of us, to welcome us into his family. See, that is the heart of the Christian faith. It is cross-shaped. So whilst what Paul asks of Christians in Romans 14 and 15 might sound inconvenient, it might sound a bit niche even. Well, it really isn't. It's an application of what it looks like to take up a cross in order to follow a cross-bound king. Let me say that again. Romans 14 and 15 are an application of what it looks like to take up a cross in order to follow a cross-bound king, putting other people's interests ahead of your own, just as he has first done for you. Let's ask him for his help for each of us as we look to do that together. Let's pray together now. Our God and Father, we praise you as one who is kind and who is good. 
And we praise you, Lord Jesus, as one who did not please himself first, but came as a servant. We acknowledge that often we receive that kindness from you, Lord, but are reluctant in showing it to others. And yet we ask this morning that you would please help those of us who have trusted in you to bear with one another. Not to destroy one another, but instead to build one another up in how it is that we use our freedoms as Christians. And we ask too, Lord, that for any who don't yet know you, that you would please make clear to them the extraordinary kindness shown towards them in Jesus. The one who served them by taking the judgment they deserved on his own shoulders that they might be ultimately, eternally free. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.